Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Suzanne Simard, professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and author of the new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Uncovering the Wisdom and Intelligence of the Forest. In this episode, she speaks to Tony Juniper about the hidden language of trees. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Suzanne's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Well, thank you very much. Um, an absolute pleasure to be here this evening and to welcome you all to this in Intelligence Squared event with, with Suzanne Simard. Now, Suzanne is Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Forestry. She was raised in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia and has earned a global reputation for her research on tree connectivity and communication and its impact on the health and the biodiversity of forests. Her new book uh, called Finding the Mother Tree, Uncovering the Wisdom and Intelligence of the Forest, uh, is a groundbreaking piece. I have to say I've written about some of these themes myself, but only ever been able to skim over some of the broad findings. But in that book, we find the research and the story behind it. And I'm looking forward to the conversation a great deal. Suzanne, I've been working as an ecologist in in different ways for a great many years. And, you know, one of the themes that inevitably comes into any discussion about ecology is this interconnected nature of nature and how all of the different elements of the natural world are connected with one another. What your book does is take that theme to a whole new level in understanding this connectivity that we can't even see unless we take the kind of forensic approaches you've been taking as a scientist. When did you first begin to become aware of this phenomenon that's going on underneath the forest floor? Well, I grew up in the inland rainforests of British Columbia. And so, you know, I'm a person of the woods, I think, in my you know, my family were forest families. <laughs> my grandfather and great grandfather were horse loggers. And so this is how I grew up. I grew up in this place. And my grandfather especially was very aware, very meticulous about he, how he logged, which meant taking out one or two trees in, in his logging with horses. And and so he was always t- teaching us about about the importance of the connection in the forest and not to to disrupt that un, un, unnecessarily and only only to take what we needed and and so that you know that experience as a child growing up with that philosophy of course bled into my own worldview of forests and I eventually became a forester but when I stepped into forestry 
I realized that that the whole practice was about disconnecting the forest, about isolating the parts and treating the trees as separate from all the other creatures. In fact, favoring them at the expense of all, pretty much all else, all other species. And um, and so that got me onto this track of trying to understand what the dangers of this were, of this very disconnected view and management of forests, and then uncovering, you know, the consequences of it. And in so doing, you know, I, I discovered, of course, more and more about connection, um, literally, that trees are connected below ground. Yeah. Now you're really getting me thinking about some of the key themes that now run through the way we, we look at nature. And mm-hmm. I guess one of the, the points you touched on there is the extent to which we have become used now to looking at, at, at forests as, as natural resources rather than some intricate self-sustaining system with incredible complexity in it. Mm-hmm. And that approach which arises from you know the, the, the need to get fibre and wood to make paper and timber, it seems to have blinded us completely to mm-hmm. this reality. And, you know, forestry today, how would you characterise the way in which that subject is taught? Because what your grandfather was doing, mm-hmm. sustainable logging, horse horse extraction that now is is very much the exception isn't it rather than the rule Mm -hmm. in terms of how that that particular industry works Mm -hmm. well so when I went through forestry school which was in the 1980s and then in graduate school in the 90s well I was taught that the forest you know that you know that trees compete with each other that we need to isolate them and you know favor them get rid of the other plants even the animals and insects that are you know feeding on them basically disrupting the whole successional process and the food webs that make, that drive all the cycles in the forest but now you know i'm a professor of forestry and i teach my students about connection and that that it's important to to keep those connections in place and to move to a more you know you know, what would I say? It's more of a natural disturbance ecology-based approach. Um, but of course, there's a whole legacy that has built up over the last half century of of treating the forest as a commodity-based resource, as you as you called it, it, which has you know when you get on that track and start managing forests in that way, because forests are long-lived and trees are long-lived creatures, and also that the industry starts to build on itself, right? It becomes entrenched in its own methods, its own policies, and there's a lot of money involved in it, that changing that, even though, the you know, I teach philosophically, and I think forest forest ecology professors around the world are probably teaching more philosophically about connection as well, it's hard to change the industry midstream or, you know, at any point. So it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort to to change the forest industry, but in doing that, you have to change people's minds and habits, and 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 also educate everybody about about connection in forests and what makes them work. Uh, maybe we'll come back to some of those themes uh, in a moment, Suzanne. But maybe just return to to some of the core research and and what you've mm-hmm. discovered in terms of of how a forest is working at this different level, which, which is now only just becoming apparent. Am I right in 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 thinking that that parallels have been made with with the brain in terms of mm-hmm. how the forest is working with these multiple connections? Yes, well, certainly neural networks. I've um, and I've uh, used the example of the brain because it's another kind of biological neural network. And so, so let me explain what what I mean by that. So, you know, what I 
have studied are these mycorrhizal fungal networks that link trees below ground. And in fact, you know, these mycorrhizal, well, mycorrhiza is literally means fungus root. It's a, it's a mutualistic, generally mutualistic symbiotic relationship between trees and, and fungi. All trees all over the world form these, these relationships. It's, it's crucial for their fitness for them to actually produce seed and reproduce. And for the fungus, it's essential because they can't photosynthesize. So they work together. The fungus gathers nutrients and water from the soil, and the tree provides photosynthate as, as an energy source. And so what I found, what really built on the work done by David Reed in the United Kingdom, um, where he showed in laboratories that, the, that pine seedlings could be connected by these fungal, fungal species below ground. And I took that to the next level and asked, well, does this actually happen in real forests? And what do they do? And in finding that these connections are ubiquitous, you know, in all the forests that we've looked at in all labs all over the world, and then finding that they're conduits really for movement of resources, that, that the community shifts resource distribution based on the needs of the community. And, and this, uh, so it follows these gradients that are that trees perceive and they respond to them. And, and so this actually uh, enhances diversity of the forest. It enhances, can, it's a fundamental to the connection of forests. And of course, you know, of course, ecologists long have known about relationships in forests. That's what they study. But this actually showed a physical connection that really turned upside down how we started to view forests. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and I remember from my research for, for the Rainforest book, really skimming this area compared with the depth that you've gone into, reading some science that was making a link also with the trees communicating with one another mm-hmm. um, when one was under pest attack, mm-hmm. communicating with chemical signals, and then the trees nearby responding by raising their own chemical defences. Is that something that you've encountered as well? Yes, yes, actually, I worked with a scientist, Dr. Yan Yan Song, who is from China, and she worked with tomato plants and found this phenomenon between tomato plants. And so she came over as a postdoc and worked with me in our rainforest in BC. And we found, you know, we did these experiments and found the same thing is happening among trees. And we were actually working with trees of different species. So she worked with tomato plants. They're all the same species linked together in a network. I was working with Douglas fir and ponderosa pine. And the reason I was interested in these two species is because as climate is changing, Douglas fir is receding along the drier margins of its distribution. So, you know, it, it's, it interfaces with grasslands and, and as climate as the temperatures warm, it's moving upward. It will move upward in in elevation and northward, and be in in theory be replaced by ponderosa pine. And so I was interested in whether, as Douglas fir was basically receding from these margins and and ponderosa pine taking over, whether there was this communication between the two species, and found that Douglas fir was warning actually ponderosa pine about injury and herbivores in the environment that were causing them to die back. And so it, it is an incredibly important phenomenon in the adaptability of forests as as climate changes. Yeah, so th- this is fundamental to, to the health of the entire system then, isn't it, as you're mm. describing, because if the trees are supplying, being supplied with nutrients by the fungi and also having these wider environmental warnings being flagged. What's the implication uh, for the future of forests in going down this route of industrial forestry with monoculture 
crops of trees, single age, as you're describing, being mm-hmm. um, favoured at the expense of everything else. Do, do we have any sense of the future of forestry even from this research? Yeah, that, that's, those are all really good questions. So the, the first question is, you know, is what are the implications of modern forestry? And, you know, the, there are huge implications, you know, re, for one, the old growth forests that I grew up around. And there are these old forests that, you know, have, they can be thousands of years old. They occur in the Amazon, they occur along the west coast of North America, they occur across the boreal forest, they occur in temperate forests. And these forests can be, like I said, hundreds to thousands of years old, which means that that over that period of time, there's a number of things that have happened. One is climate has changed, you know, it goes up and down. And that change, trees adapt to those changes, and they record it in the DNA that's in their seeds. And so they actually hold a repository of adaptability in their seeds. If we get rid of these old trees, then that, you know, that seed source basically disappears. The other thing that old forests do is they they store a a huge amount of carbon. And in the old growth forest, it's basically been accumulating for centuries. And when we cut those forests down, pretty much automatically, you know, the the removal of the trees themselves, most of that carbon, over two thirds of it, is pretty much just dissipates into the atmosphere immediately, because it's converted to these short term products like toilet paper and so on. And so, you know, and then the below ground community, also, which holds half the carbon, it's also enhances decomposition processes. And so there's, there is an enormous loss of carbon, you know, over half, um, um, by the time all is said and done, and the and the system has started to de- decline and decompose. And then replacing these with seedlings, it takes decades, if not you know, a century to recover to a neutral, a neutral carbon content. And then, you know, to become an old growth forest again, it will take that long again for them to become store as much. So that's the carbon story. That's a crucial story, right? Harvesting those old growth forests, you can't recapture that carbon in short periods of time. You can't recapture it with planting trees within the time period that we have left to change the course of climate change. And of course, the biodiversity is another question too. Like they are the homes of 80% of our biodiversity terrestrial. And so losing that biodiversity is also super, a super critical loss. Absolutely. And I, I remember some analysis that's come from various scientists who've mapped carbon and also biodiversity mm-hmm. and yeah. found that the, they're in the same place, the, the big yes, stocks of remaining biological carbon and the um biological diversity are in the same spots. And this then, of course, raises questions around, you know, the policy discourse around climate change. And, you know, one of the framings that has become very prominent here in Mm -hmm. the UK, and maybe in Canada, too, Mm -hmm. as society begins to grapple with climate change and what to do about it. And yes, we're going to have to have electric cars, and we're going to go Mm -hmm. to renewable electricity. Mm -hmm. um, But a very big emphasis on tree planting. Mm-hmm. And I, I find this framing fascinating because as an ecologist, it seems to me that first priority is to conserve the remaining forest rather Absolutely. than to go for tree planting. And then the second priority I would describe as expanding woodland rather than tree planting. And, you know, yes. to most ears, those two things might sound like exactly the same thing. But what you're describing is is something which is rather different. And yeah. uh, one wonders what can be done 
to shift that emphasis in, in the discussion because, you know, some of it evidently is being driven by some of the commercial interests and the extent mm-hmm. to which a natural woodland has got little immediate value in the market, whereas a tree crop um, ultimately will be generating a return in terms of its timber saleability. What, what do we need to do, I wonder, to move the discussion on? Is it simply a question of, of challenging some of these business models or is it a more profound shift of consciousness that's needed? Probably both, think, I'm thinking. I think both. I mean, certainly the business model is based on, you know, it's a growth model and it's, you know, and it values forests based on, you know, very rudimentary products. You know, in British Columbia and Canada, it's two by fours pulp and paper. And that's a very low value assigned to the forest when it's actually our life sustaining support systems, right? As you mentioned early in our interview, I mean, it, these, so we really need to value our forests based on the, the, the true, you know, importance of them to our lives, you know, you know, their ability to clean water, clean air, store carbon, biodiversity. How do you put a price on that? It, we haven't, we haven't, taken that difficult step to do that, but we have to. And once we do that, then we'll, you know, we'll start to say, oh, these old growth forests are way more valuable standing up than on a, on a, you know, on a train with, that is full of two by fours. And so that's a fundamental shift we have to make. We absolutely have to put a price on carbon and hopefully biodiversity and water and, and air and all that. We haven't had to so far because, you know, it's, we've, it seems like we'd have had endless resources of, of forests. And, but, you know, where I live, which is sort of like the last frontier, British Columbia is in my lifetime has turned from a province of old growth forests to a province of clear cuts because we haven't valued these these forests properly. So we have to do that. How do we do that? Well, people need to get behind their governments and force their governments to do it. And in order for people to get behind it, they need to understand the importance of these old forests. And then woodlands, as you said, you know, so so conserving and preserving what we have left is is paramount. And then converting or restoring ecosystems that have been degraded from native woodlands or forests back to those native woodlands and forests is also absolutely crucial. And and a woodland, you know, as we talked about, is very different than a plantation. A woodland is where you have natural regeneration, and we can assist that natural regeneration. But the trees, when they get going, you know, they're very different than a planted tree. They, they have roots that are complex. They're after resources. And so they, they adapt to their soil environment and they are linked into the legacies of the past. And so they're really productive. They're healthy. They're resilient. Whereas a plantation where we plant seedlings that are like disconnected from the ecosystem, you know, those are completely different. They're not very diverse. They're not resilient. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and they're not as valuable from a life from a life support systems point of view. You're reminding me of a, of a field trip I made just two weeks ago. So at the height of the English springtime, to what was a, a really very magical place in East Anglia in England, a place called Monk's Wood. It's a national mm-hmm. nature reserve and it's an ancient woodland. But in the early 1960s, 1961, a famous British forest ecologist established a series of so-called wilderness plots, basically um, open land, some of it grassland, but one plot was a barley field 
1960. And basically, the experiment was just to see what would happen if you left the barley field next to the ancient woodland. So a seed source and a source of animals to move the seeds. And I went there and 60 years on, uh, you have ancient woodland indicator species coming back in there. And you've got this incredible, diverse, vibrant system that's come in what was a wheat field. But this is just so rare uh, in this country, and I think most places, because we've become, again, used to this idea of tree planting and the idea of natural regeneration being something that doesn't quite work. But I was really struck by that. Do you have anything in British Columbia that would resemble a, a, a natural forestry cycle? You described your grandfather's horse logging, but is there any modern forestry operation that's working like that? You know, I wish there was more of it. We do have, you know, in some of our drier forests, there's been a long history of what we call selective logging. And that that is where, you know, they leave old trees and to provide seed and then they self-regenerate under their own canopy. They're shade tolerant trees and they they look pretty natural. And of course, we do have old growth uh, reserves and preserves and protected areas. Um, But most of our preserves are you know, and parks are in areas where people go mountain climbing or, you know, hiking in the high elevations and they don't have the big, valuable old trees. And so we really struggle with that as well. And, you know, our forestry practice is to when, when you know, cutting happens and it's generally clear cutting, maybe leaving the odd tree there, those are planted. They're all planted back. And we basically have gotten onto what you're talking about, which is, you know, they plant them quickly so they can grow a forest quickly so they can cut it down quickly. <laughs> and those forests are very different than a naturally regenerated forest, as you say. I mean, we even go in forestry so far as to take out the native plants that are those early successional plants, right? That And short-circuiting natural selection so that we create these like conifer plantations that really, you know, y- you've lost that such a crucial period. I call it like the healing period of the forest where after a disturbance, you have these plants come in because they have a role to play, right? To take up nutrients, to, to heal the soil and um, and create a nice foundation for a, a nice diverse forest coming up. Now, mm-hmm. I wonder, and you, you, you've evidently been working in this field for, for a long time, Suzanne, whether, you know, you feel as though we may be reaching some kind of public consciousness tipping point in all of this. Because, you know, we, we've had campaigns on, on forests and deforestation since the 1970s. And I, I was personally involved from mm-hmm. 1990 working at Friends of the Earth on the tropical mm-hmm. forest campaign. But still, we have these areas of forest being cut down and set on fire and clear felled. What do you think is the near-term future? Are we going to be able to turn that back? Have we reached a tipping point? Well, we do need to change our practices and our view, our worldview of forests. Instead of exploiting them, we need to be protecting them and and, and fostering their regeneration. And I, I agree with you on natural regeneration. And we can combine natural regeneration with planting to bootstrap these ecosystems back into a productive state. But um, in British Columbia, where I live, it's gotten so critical, you know, this tip, approaching this tipping point that we actually only have you know, 8% of our productive old growth forests left, the, the rest have been clear cut. On Vancouver Island, southern Vancouver Island, only 3% left. And right now, um, we actually have huge protests going on at a place called Ferry Creek, which is the last untouched headwaters of old growth forest on Vancouver Island, which is one of the most productive forest areas in the world. And here we are, you know, we have students and protesters, you know, basically putting their lives on the line. Um 
you know, to, to fight the zeal to cut down those last few trees in the name of what, you know, to create, to make a few bucks. Like it's just, it doesn't add up, right? We're far better off to leave those forests standing and to support these protesters so that we, that we do make the, make the government make the shift, right? That we value these forests more for their, their biodiversity and carbon storage and all that instead of, you know, to make a few bucks for the short term. Yeah, indeed. And this is then where your point about the, um, the, the ecosystem services and the valuation and, mm-hmm. and to help people understand that, you know, there, 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 there is a far bigger actual economic value of, of the forest standing up yes. rather than being cut down. Worth more alive than dead is a, is a, is a phrase that Absolutely. the Prince of Wales has used to, to talk about mm-hmm. this and trying to get that across. Can you just take us in a little bit into the actual mechanism of, of how this story is unfolding underground and how, the, the, the trees are actually communicating with one another. Is it literally like a nervous system? Um, yeah. You think of like neurotransmitters and synapses. Is it like yeah. that? Yeah, it's got, it certainly has parallels to that. And so I call it a biological neural network because when we map the network in the forest, we found that it has that pattern where you have a few, you know, nodes that are really big and highly connected, and then a bunch of satellites, and those will be the, you know, smaller trees connected by these fungal networks. And when we graph, when we use statistical graph theory to analyze that, it comes out as a, as a neural network, which are quite co- complex with highly connected nodes and, and less connected ones with linkages between them. And what we found is that these linkages, they're, they're conduits for transmission of resources in, that have certain chemistry to them. And one of the main resources that moves through or the compounds that moves through the network is, is glutamate, which is the same as one of our own neural, neurotransmitters is, is glutamate. And we also know like plants actually have serotonin in them as well. And so the combination of, of the pattern of the network, that it's a neural network, that there are neuro you know these glutamate compounds that move through them and also we have synapses in in these networks below ground as well between the fungus and the plant root where this transmission or this exchange goes on and so there's a lot of parallels and you know i think that the reason there are parallels is that these complex networks these neural networks they work right they're highly evolved across many different kinds of systems not just in our own brains <laughs> and of course what I'm describing here are not brains in the soil. Soil. There are patterns. There are patterns that have parallel functions and and uh, structures. But anyway, these neural networks are highly conserved across many systems because they work. They're efficient at moving information around. They're resilient. In fact, in our own built systems, human systems, we we use we mimic those systems right? because they're so efficient. Like our transportation systems, the subway system. You know, you'll have a few subway stations that are highly, you know, that are the key hubs, and then all these other smaller ones that go to the smaller area, rural areas around it. So those neural networks, we see them ubiquitously across our social and built environments as well, because they work so well. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents that's right three months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just thinking of deforestation and that subject of, you know, the continuing loss of forests, do, do we have any sense of, of how recovery occurs? So the natural regeneration piece we talked about a bit, would we expect the fungal networks to be recovering in there? Yes. Yes, they will. I mean, as long as there are plants um, and they're photosynthesizing, and especially if you allow those trees and plants to, to carry out their full life cycle, you know, that the, the fungal community actually has a succession to it as well. So after a, a disturbance immediately, or if you're trying to restore a grassland to a forest or a woodland, then that fungal network will be quite simple and maybe even different than it would be with a woodland. And you might have to do some remediation of the network. But once the tree trees get going and aging, that the the fungal network becomes more complex. You get, you know, these, I call them sort of old growth fungal species come on and they have different niches, different functionalities. And then the system works better and better and better as the, as the woodland gets older and older. Right, indeed. And that aging process maybe is something that we kind of don't pay too much attention to as we're obsessed with tree planting. How many millions of trees can we plant? How many yeah. hectares? <laughs> Recognising that mm-hmm. the stuff that we've got that's most valuable in this country, we have the term ancient woodland, which is by definition a woodland that's older than 1600, so 420 years. And, you know, we value those particularly because of the biodiversity and everything else. Uh, but one wonders how much we think about 400-year type timescales as we're adopting tree planting targets, one for the policymakers. Suzanne, let's, let's delve into a few of the questions now. So one has come through here on the question of forest fires and what extent we should be 
trying to prevent them and put them out. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's quite topical, isn't it, given, you know, the headlines over the last couple of years with massive forest fires mm-hmm. in some geographies with actually, you know, um, uh, President Trump, not the world's greatest environmentalist, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> suggesting that, you know, this is because we haven't cut enough trees down. I mean, obviously a lot of complexity in all of this uh, and also depending on the geography. But what should we do about fires? Should we worry too much? Well, fires, you know, most of our fires, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, are fire-regenerated forests. Sorry, most of our forests are fire-regenerated forests. That means that they've adapted to fire and that they depend on fire to rejuvenate the forests. And so, you know, it's it's to our, you know, benefit to, to you know, uh, keep those natural fire regimes in place as much as we can. What we've done in North America is we've suppressed fire, and I'm, I'm sure that's probably the case in Europe as well, so that we can you know, save these forests in in the case of North America, so that we can cut them down later and and benefit ourselves. And but in suppressing fire, we've actually made the situation worse, because fuels build up. And, uh, and then the forests are more vulnerable. And as climate changes, and the temperatures go up when you have, you know, high fuel loads and high temperatures, all you need is a spark, and you can have these huge mega fires. Um, And so that's what we're kind of dealing with down here. So the extent and the severity of fires are actually increasing as climate is changing. But, you know, I think that it doesn't mean that we should be excluding fire even more. It means that we need to re, we should be reintroducing fire to reinvigorate these communities because these forests are adapted. They need fire to, to, to do well. And because we have our population, our human population has grown so much. Of course, that's going to have to get controlled so that in a sense, have controlled wild burns, if you want to call it that, so that they don't escape into our communities and and harm people. But it can be done. You know, we can be successful at that. We just have to get a little smarter and and practice it more. Yeah, indeed. Yes. And uh, something that is evidently not going to go away is the climate changes. Actually, one John here is picking up the question, um, how do you define a mother tree? How does this work in a forest? Which is probably a good question, given the name of the book. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, we... I came up or we came up with that name through a series of experiments. But the main thing is that, well, just simply, they're the biggest, oldest trees in the forest. And the reason that, that they are the, you know, the mother trees is because their root systems are vast. They have, and, and if they're old, they have like these fungal networks that are, you know, ancient or older mycorrhizal fungi that do all these amazing uh, things in different niches in the soil. And so they're, they're extensive, they're diverse, and they actually, through our experiments, we found that these networks nurture the regeneration of the new seedlings coming up. So these old trees will provide the network in which the natural regeneration establishes, and then the old trees will transmit resources like water and carbon and nitrogen and defense uh, signals and they even transmit information about the rec- about the relatedness of of these old trees to the seedlings and that you know that process is essential to regeneration of a healthy forest so yeah that's what a mother tree is yeah and that's an incredible incredible insight that that's come from what you've been investigating um do, do those mother trees favor their own species or or are they assisting everything that's growing around them 
you know, that it's a community, a community of many species, and they're all linked together. And there is this fluid transmission between all the different species. And so, you know, certainly, you know, when we think of evolution, in it's very narrow sense, it's about survival of the fittest and in individual species, and how competition is such an important part of that. Well, it turns out collaboration is also an important part of that as well. And from a community point of view, you know, trees and plants and animals, they grow in mixed communities, they don't grow all by themselves as a single species as a population and so um, you know this trend you know these linkages actually happen between species these below ground linkages and there's a transmission of resources from one species to another I in fact my first experiments were with birch and fir and that they transmit carbon back and forth between them and you know this actually helped keep the community diverse and resistant to the diseases that were occurring in in the soil in my forest type right so they're benefiting um aren't they so you you could explain this in kind of darwinian evolutionary terms in the sense of the individual is helping the community to help the individual exactly that's exactly right yeah Mm -hmm. cool well something definitely been out there for human societies i I guess that's some kind of um arboreal socialism going on there Well, it's a it's a complex system, right? It's it's neither socialism or capitalism. It's it's both, right? It it is you know they they compete but they collaborate. They have these sophisticated ways of interacting and communicating, and that that's what makes it makes it a a, a diverse and resilient society, right? It's it's like if we were all we ever did as humans was compete against each other and you know we get dominant individuals, well society would collapse, right? We need to have these sharing, you know, collaborative where and, and people have their different niches, right? They they have their different areas of expertise and we work together to create this productive community. It's the same in a forest. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And and the diversity is part of its strength in that sense. Yes, it is. Part of its resilience. Yes, it is. And there's lots of studies to show that, that as diversity goes up, that productivity goes up and and resilience goes up or its ability to resist infections and invasions and so on. Yeah, so so the um the 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 the, uh, the monoculture which is dominated is is perhaps um something that we need to bring into many of these discussions and actually the same of course prevails in agriculture, not only forestry. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's such economically driven, right? If we, I know in British Columbia, you know, we thought, oh, we made so much money off of Douglas fir, we're just going to grow Douglas fir. Like, what were we thinking, really? But we tried, you know, and it didn't work very well because all, you know, we started getting our malaria root disease and Felinus root disease and Western spruce budworm, and it's like, well, that didn't work because it's we took this diverse community and tried to reduce it down to a commodity. And that commodity cannot be grown by itself alone. And it's interesting, you know, even today, you know, we're talking about, you know, how do we manage our land base? Well, we should zone off, you know, these plantations and have zones of plantations. Then we can have a zone of natural forests. Then we can have a zone of wild forests. But those plantations, if we think that they're going to be the most productive places where we're going to make a lot of money, I think we, you know, we're going to be fooled by that because, these ecosystems, even if we're putting in fertilizers and water and irrigating them and pruning them, they still are very vulnerable if you grow them as single species. Yeah, right. 
and um, events in the real world underline that fact. So just on this question of, of commodities, Suzanne, and, you know, driven by consumption and the market and, and our particular form of economics, Karen Doherty has a question here. She says, there have been well-known campaigns around reducing the consumption of products linked with uh, tropical deforestation, for example, mm-hmm. beef and palm oil. Do we need, she asks, to reduce consumption of products produced from conifer plantations mm-hmm. uh, if we want natural forests to regenerate? So, yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that we can be way smarter about our consumption. You know, I think we're consuming as though we have an endless resource, right? There's a lot of, you know, a, basically overconsumption. And, and I think, you know, if we, we can use alternative materials but we can also just use less right do we need to keep you know re or building huge houses in north america for example that that people you'll have two people living in these huge mansions or that they don't need all that they can live in smaller houses this the houses back in the 40s were like a tenth i don't know maybe that's an exaggeration a fraction of the size of what they are now so we we need to be you know a little more humble i think in our our consumption yeah we do and Here's another point. You know, in, in in British Columbia right now, we're having a big debate because we're turning some of our boreal forests and temperate forests into wood pellets and sending the wood pellets to the UK so that the UK, you know, Europeans can b- burn these wood pellets in their stoves as a an alternative to fossil fuels. Well, actually, that is more of an environmental disaster than burning the fossil fuels themselves because we're cutting down these boreal forests to to create pellets and that's resulting in loss of biodiversity and huge emissions of carbon to the atmosphere while we're saving a few you know btus from not burning fossil fuels in europe it doesn't make it doesn't add up right we need to do the right kinds of calculations we got to the economics have to be in place that the 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 models have to be correct so that we really truly understand the cost of this kind of practice, you know, you might be solving a, a practice over in Europe, but we're leaking really badly over in North America carbon because we're trying to f- fuel or feed this market that is not very well thought out. Okay, and so um, uh, Lily Lajavadi, I'm so sorry, Lily, if I've mispronounced your name, uh, but a question very much linked to these points, Suzanne, we're touching on here, whether it's biomass or timber or fibre. How do you see the future of commercial forestry? What is a model you think we can reasonably transition to? And actually, that's a key question, isn't it? Because yeah. it, it, it links to the market, it links to consumption, and the kind of business models that would be there in the future if we're going to solve these problems. And I, yeah. I guess well, one element of that would be you know, the extent to which we're valuing all of the non-resource yeah. elements, the carbon, the water, the biodiversity, everything else. How do you see that, uh, the future of commercial forestry? Yeah, so... so- yeah, valuing forest ecosystems properly is essential. And once we, you know, but we don't even need to put that in place quite yet. We can, we can automatically right away just stop cutting down old growth forests because we can't environmentally afford to do this anymore in our globe, right? The feedback loops to climate change are huge. And we, you know, we understand enough for that we know it's not a good thing to do. And so then we can shift our focus if we, you know, we still need wood, we can shift our focus to second growth forests so, or third growth or 
you know, places that have already been harvested because we've already lost the carbon stocks or a good part of them. And so, you know, let's focus on where the losses have already occurred. And in those forests, we can reco- we can help them recover too. And the way we can do that is leaving old, you know, the older trees in place. You can still take out the smaller trees around them, um, but selectively taking out the smaller trees and leaving the big old trees to bootstrap the natural regeneration uh, and, and you know, add in some planting too, if necessary, to make a healthy ecosystem. But that's diverse, you know, that, that we're actually fostering the diversity by leaving these old legacies behind. But, but the key point here is leave the old forests as much as we have left, as much as we can now, and focus our cutting on these second growth forests or, you know, already degraded forests. And then within those, you know, work to enhance them, like leaving the old trees, introducing, you know, old growth elements into them. We can do that. You know, we have enough knowledge to do that. Yes, we, we have the knowledge. I guess the challenge is, is creating the business model and the the culture in forestry, isn't it, to be wanting to adopt those those methods. Monia or Monica, thank you for the question, uh, which is, has genetic modification reached the forests? Do we, do we have GMO tree crops coming yet? You know, I don't know a lot about GMO tree crops. I know that people are working on it. They have been for decades. And um, there certainly are, you know, plantations I know in the south the southeast United States, they grow GMO cottonwoods, for example, to produce fiber for toilet paper and so on. Um, so I know those do exist, but in that, in forestry practices in Canada and where I'm from, they don't do GMO trees, but they do uh, tree breeding. And tree breeding is taking you know natural genetic diversity and breeding for for faster growing trees. And I think there is a place for this, but you know I think most importantly where genetics is essential that we, you know, as climate changes, the velocity of climate change is very rapid. It's much more rapid than trees can naturally adapt and uh, and evolve. And it's a lot faster than they are able to migrate as well. So trees, ha- the only other alternative they have, if they can't migrate, if they can't adapt, they'll die. And so, um, as you know, as we know that climate is changing quickly, we're going to have to help trees migrate right so that they can so we can keep forests on the ground so they can continue to keep carbon in the ground and carbon you know being sequestered and biodiversity so it's going to be our job as human beings to help these forests to to have you know a mix of naturally regenerated seedlings that are going to provide a scaffolding for these migrants that we can move them into, and then they can work together to create a, a viable ecosystem. So in that sense, so that's not GMO, though. That is just tree breeding and then moving, assisting the migration. That's quite two different, quite two, two quite different things. Yes. So there's a, 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 perhaps a related question here from Simon Wicker. So Simon's asking, tree diseases such as ash dieback, I don't know mm-hmm. if you come across that, it's, it's affecting mm-hmm. um, ash trees, um, Fraxinus, if you know that yeah. genus, it's um, probably got it in North America. Could the network provide a solution to these diseases naturally if we leave the trees standing and allow them to produce seed with resilience to the diseases rather than cutting them down when they show signs of sickness? And that's actually a, a really a very live question here at the moment, as that disease now is is rampaging across the country with many mm-hmm. sick ash trees apparent everywhere. So what should we do about that? Well, the you know, the first thing is that the reason that one of the reasons that we have the problem in the first place is that we've planted, you know, 
monocultures of ash trees or along boulevards where we don't have mixes of species. And so when you have a single species crowded together and no others, then if you get something like the emerald ash borer come in, it's of course going to kill those trees because that's all that's there. And so we, so creating a more diverse forest, urban forest or natural forest is, is the ultimate long-term key to this. But I'll also say that, you know, we've done experiments where we show that in <laughs> where we've actually stressed trees to the point where they're dying. And I haven't used the emerald ash borer, but other herbivores, insect herbivores to stress trees. And what we found is that these dying trees, mother trees, actually transmit carbon to their seedlings, especially kin seedlings around them to give them a boost to, to get onto the next generation. And the the other thing that we found is that it changes their 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 defense chemistry as well. There's information that goes to these seedlings, these especially kin seedlings, that they actually enhance their defense chemistry. We touched on this earlier, but and that gets passed on to multiple generations down the road. And so these old trees are actually training their offspring to be more resilient to the to these herbivores that killed the the original mother tree in, in, uh, at the beginning. Yeah. So it does it it's important to to let these natural processes take place as much as we can instead of going in like I think our automatic reaction is let's go in and cut the tree down, get rid of it, burn it or whatever. But in so doing we're actually short-circuiting that natural process of teaching the next generation of of how to survive. Yeah. We we take a very human-centric view of nature, don't we? And Yeah, and try to make money from it. <laughs> try to make money from it and then when it's in trouble feel as though um, we have to intervene rather than leave it alone. So we a recurrent theme here comparing the natural forest with um the forestry for for resource production. A question here from Jenny Borgerhoff Mulder. Jenny Borgerhoff Mulder. Are there more pests and diseases in in a crop forest Mm -hmm. than there are in a natural forest? Uh, And is that similarly affected by climate change? Yeah. Well, (laughs) yes. I can definitively say yes, because I've studied this and published about five papers on this myself in forests in British Columbia, where we were looking at plantations actually of lodgepole pine, which I, I know that you plant in Europe as well, in Douglas fir. But this was a study on lodgepole pine. And we found that there were, you know, that there were 50 different damaging agents that were causing lethal damage to these plantations to the point where only half the trees would be left standing within a few years. And as the climate was warmer and warmer, which was up, you know, we were trying to project what climate change would do, it was worse and worse and worse. And so these, and it's because these pathogens and insects, they love warm, wet conditions, right? They reproduce much faster under those conditions. And so then the infestations are worse. And so, yeah, but whereas the natural, naturally regenerated trees, even in the same plantations that we were looking at, if they were naturally regenerated, they weren't attacked nearly as much. They were much healthier. And you know, they had far less incidence of disease. It was more like a natural forest. And so ultimately, those are the trees that are going to form the next forest, not the planted ones, because the planted ones are are on their way out. They're dying. So it's not only the resilience of the natural system, actually the resilience of a commercial operation can be enhanced by fostering some of these natural processes. And so those young trees that are coming into the the plantation forestry, but which are are regenerating on their own, is that the consequence, do you think, Suzanne, of those 
relationships underground again? Or is it, it something to do with the natural selection of the seed? I, no, it's having enough of the old trees as a seed source around. So, you know, seed can disperse, you know, with, with it, most of it within a couple hundred meters of a, a living tree. And then those seeds will just naturally come in and augment whatever you might have planted there. And, and so then, of course, if... As long as the network is intact, if those old trees exist there, then the network will exist, right? Because it's the, the old trees are photosynthesizing and feeding the network. And then, then the new seedlings and the naturally regenerated seedlings can tap into that existing network and, and get a head start. But if you leave it fallow, if you don't, if you don't leave some of these old trees or if you don't, or you cut and you don't plant or you don't foster natural regeneration right away, that network will disappear within a, within a couple of years. Okay, so people listening, uh, don't forget if any of this is of interest to the point where you want to share some of the things you're hearing, do tweet hashtag IQ2 and we can help widen some of the discussion in the Twitter sphere. Now, is there uh, so Camilla Redfern? Now, this is an interesting one because we've had a big discussion lately, of course, around synthetic meats and fishes and everything else. It's slightly outside your research area, Suzanne, but Camilla asks, is there any research carried, being carried out to artificially create paper fiber substitutes? And I guess the same could go for wood, couldn't it, in terms of how we might replace these demands on forest ecosystems by producing things somewhere else or with something else and so the meat substitute idea obviously is is inspiring a lot of investment flowing into that slightly different issues but nonetheless Mm -hmm. one wonders whether there's something there i mean i'm not an expert in this at all but certainly anything that creates a fiber you could probably create paper from actually fungal material is being used for a lot of substitutes for for wood products even building materials right mycelial bricks that you can actually build a house with even mycelial dresses and clothing and yeah so i think that and also just you know more using our wood you know, we can still use wood, we can still use it more sustainably, right? We can, yes, substitution is is important, but also just better use of what we we do have as well. Yeah, this is this is a big part of the carbon story that, that gets much less airtime. The idea of planting a tree is linked with mm-hmm. carbon, but the mm-hmm. end use of the wood, much less talked about. And so, you know, a cathedral, I'm sitting here in Exeter in the southwest of England, um, there's a cathedral just across the road, which has got some great big wooden beams in it that have been mm-hmm. in there for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so that carbon was captured in the medieval period, and it's still captured. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the end destination for wood you know compare that with putting some paper into a landfill or an incinerator Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. the carbon's returned pretty quickly so that whole life cycle of how we value wood so alongside Mm -hmm. the consumption piece and maybe some of the substitution issues is this discussion around how we store carbon in long-lived products it's true i mean you know one of the things that horrifies me all the time is the amount of packaging we use right do we really need to do that that's a huge waste because we use it once or or paper cups or you know we use it once it's like that single use product those things i think should be outlawed right because what a what a what a waste like you know using more natural materials to if we need to package things or carry something from the grocery store like carry it in a leaf or or carry it in your backpack or you know and just refuse to use those things i think there are some very smart things we can do to really can reduce our consumption of these short-term products and then yeah the long-term storage like 
building a cathedral, that that is a good use, even though you know a standing tree is actually stores more carbon than than even a you know a wooden beam cathedral will, or a wooden or a log house, or but you know oil carbon. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know the key though is to try and get rid of these short-term uses and single uses of paper because that's that would save a lot of forest, a lot of trees right off the bat. Yeah, the interesting questions there, aren't there, around the, the total life cycle of, of wood compared to whatever else you might use. And, and so, you know, big discussions around plastic, obviously, with all the mm-hmm. awareness around oceans filling mm-hmm. up with, with waste and, uh, you know, a natural alternative to plastic is, is paper. And, you know, I know a lot of architects lately who have been thinking about the carbon story, thinking about how you can move away from steel and concrete. And again, structural wood uh, is mm-hmm. an alternative there. So, yeah, quite a lot of analysis, I guess, required to understand yeah. the, the full picture, yeah. recognising that people probably, you know, will, will want to continue building buildings into the future. Yeah. And we do have we do have brilliant modelling, right? We do have brilliant ways to look at this and analyse it properly. And we, we need to do it. We need to really take a more whole system approach to to analyzing the products and their uses and value. Suzanne, we've we've covered the most in, incredible amount of ground. We've gone from natural regeneration to thinking about planting. We've talked about consumption of raw materials. We've talked about carbon and biodiversity, the culture of forestry, and much in between. But I fear we're out of time, which um, is an incredibly quick hour. But can I just say thank you, Suzanne, for being with us this evening and for sharing such a a great deal of wisdom at so many levels. And thank you, everybody, for joining the Intelligence Squared event this evening. And Suzanne, thank you for your incredible contribution to a theme which um, I'm absolutely certain that we've not heard the last of. And having heard that this is now going to be made into a Hollywood film, I think uh, maybe this is just the beginning. And, you know, the insight and the wisdom that comes from ecology and translating that into stories that people can understand possibly is the most important job on planet Earth uh, in the early 21st century. So thank you for all your contributions. And uh, we'll look forward to learning more of your work as we go along. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Those are really great questions. Thank you.